Hello everyone, my name is Sebastian Valancourt, and welcome to the first episode of Crisis Watch Kingston, a brand new documentary series here on CFRC, which will also be available as a podcast. So to start off this new series, I want to give you all a little background as to who I am, and what exactly this series is going to be about. So, as I said, my name is Sebastian Valancourt, and I'm the Special Projects Coordinator here at CFRC, and I'm very excited to be bringing you lots of new content this year with a focus on social justice issues in and around the Kingston community. You may have heard me before bringing you some of our daily news briefs and other news content, such as a recent interview I conducted with some of the incredible organizers behind Islamic History Month here in Kingston. But this show is going to be a little bit different. To explain why, I want to tell you now a little bit about myself. I'm currently a fifth-year student here at Queens, which means I've had the absolute pleasure of calling Kingston home for about four and a half years now. In that time, I've been able to meet a lot of really incredible people all over town and have come to learn about what life is like outside of Queens and the student district. I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of very dedicated and hardworking organizations fighting for this community, and that's a very big part of why I'm here today. As you may have guessed by the title of this series, once again, that's Crisis Watch Kingston, in this show, we're going to be talking all about the many different crises facing our community. Crises like the housing crisis, homelessness and food insecurity, the opioid epidemic and addiction in general, healthcare, and especially mental health. If that sounds like a lot to cover, it is. But it's my hope that over the course of this series, we can start to connect the dots a little and show just how much these many crises overlap and intersect as we try to better understand the forces at play here. The main way I hope to achieve this is by not hogging the mic. In each episode of this series, I plan to bring on multiple guests from a wide variety of backgrounds and perspectives to share their stories. That means not only will we be sitting down with some of those organizers I mentioned earlier, but also city and government officials, local businesses, charitable groups, labor activists, and concerned citizens. But most importantly, I want this show to be a platform for those members of this community who are facing these issues head on every day. We'll be talking with folks living on the streets here. People living with addictions, people who are struggling to pay the bills, whether that's rent, hydro, groceries, or medical fees. It is my goal with this series to amplify voices other than my own and offer a deep dive into our community from as many angles as possible. I'm not here to try and tell you all how or what to think and feel. I may not always agree with the perspectives being offered on this show, but it's important to remember that you don't have to agree with someone to hear them out and to have a conversation. The main focus of this show will be to, for at least an hour every month, listen to someone's own unique perspective of what life is like in Kingston, and how these ongoing crises impact the many different peoples here. So without any further delay, let's jump right into this first episode by introducing today's topic and guests. For this first episode of Crisis Watch Kingston, I want to start off a little broad, and so we'll be touching on a few different topics today, all of which tie back to what will serve as the main theme of the first few episodes of this series, the housing crisis. So before we go any further, we need to talk about what exactly the housing crisis is, because I know the term can be a little vague. A crisis itself can mean a few different things, the turning point of a disease, the climax of a story, but most importantly, though that first one certainly seems relevant given the ongoing pandemic, it refers to a situation which has reached its critical phase and where decisive change is impending. 
I feel this absolutely describes the current state of the housing situation, not just here in Kingston, but all across Canada and abroad. So let's talk about why that is. There are 235,000 people who experience homelessness every year in Canada, and that number has been growing, especially since the start of the pandemic. Statistics Canada in January of this year published a report which outlines this trend titled, Characterizing People Experiencing Homelessness and Trends in Homelessness Using Population Level Emergency Department Visit Data in Ontario, Canada. And I just want to highlight a few of its key findings related to homelessness. First, that the number of homeless persons visiting emergency departments has increased. And this report states that this is due not only to a rise in homelessness, but the increasing danger of experiencing homelessness. So not only are there more people living on the streets today, it's also more dangerous than ever to be doing so. Secondly, this rise was concentrated in the working age population, specifically in younger adults, which points to, and I quote here, poor income supports for this population. So in the context of the pandemic, that could be referring to, on, on one hand, a, a lack of employment for younger adults, and secondly, it potentially points to the fact that the CERB and CESB programs were not providing enough income support for this population. And finally, there were geographic shifts towards areas outside of the historical centers of homelessness, namely Toronto, which means that homelessness is not just a big city issue where homes are selling for tens of millions of dollars, people all across the nation are unable to afford housing. And I point to these findings specifically, as they are all topics we'll be touching on with our guest today, but I do recommend anyone listening who's interested in learning more about how homelessness in Canada is changing, definitely check out the report as it deals a lot with demographic statistics, which is something we'll be returning to next time, but more on that later. This housing crisis we're all living through isn't just about this apparent lack of affordable housing, though. It's also about a lack of adequate housing. Several articles have been published recently here in Kingston, which give a voice to frustrated tenants all across the city. A few of these tenants, living in a complex owned by the Kingston and Frontenac Housing Corporation, spoke out to Global News back in July in a video which revealed buildings that were infested with bugs and riddled with maintenance issues. One tenant, a woman named Pamela Horrocks, went as far as to call the living conditions outright terrible, even saying she did not feel safe living there. So to call back to those definitions I gave a minute ago. When you have a situation where homelessness is on the rise, the condition of available housing is rapidly deteriorating, tenants across the city are calling on their landlords to act, and all of this is happening during a global pandemic, well, the situation seems to have reached what you could call a critical phase, where decisive change is impending. And we've seen the beginnings of this as constant pressure on City Hall has led to some actions starting to be taken. Notably, this past Tuesday, that's October the 19th, Kingston City Council had a meeting to discuss short-term solutions to address the needs of the homeless community over the winter. While the council had been talking about potentially paying to house some people in motels this winter, another proposal was brought up at the meeting which led to a unanimous vote in favor of support for a local initiative by the organization Our Livable Solutions to build what they call sleeping cabins, which are, and to quote roughly from Terry Bercy's recent article in the Kingstonist about the decision, Two by nine foot wooden cabins which contain heating, lighting, smoke detection, and internet access, among other everyday essentials. And the hope with this project is to provide a bit more stability for the homeless community and to reduce at least some of the dangers they face living on the streets. And this brings us to our first guests here on the show. Today we'll be talking with Ivan Stoyukovich and Doug Yearwood, two organizers from the Cataraqua Union of Tenants and members of the Communist Party of Canada. These two are some of the loudest voices in Kingston speaking out about the conditions of housing here, as well as advocating for people on the streets. And both of them have recently written some very interesting articles that we'll be talking with them about today, though I do recommend that anybody who's listening that's interested in what Doug and Ivan have to say today definitely check these out. 
The first of these articles, Capitalist Solutions Are Creating and Sustaining the Housing Crisis by Ivan, which was published in People's Voice newspaper and offers a socialist perspective on the origins of the housing crisis and the forces that perpetuate it. And we'll hear from Ivan shortly on what some of these forces are. But I also want to mention Doug's recent opinion piece in the Kingstonist titled, Cities Rideau Heights Plans Are Bad for Tenants, which gets into the details of the City of Kingston's 2015 plan to revitalize the Rideau Heights neighborhood with some commentary from Doug on why the plan falls short for those currently living there. Doug also recently published an online course called Why the Rent is Too Damn High, which if you're looking for another, more detailed definition on the housing crisis specifically, it's available for free on readpassage.com. So I had the pleasure last week of sitting down with Ivan in his home, where we were later joined by Doug, and this conversation was fairly long, so I've had to cut it down a little bit to keep it to the length of the episode, but I hope you enjoy these highlights from the interview where we talk all about the Kingston housing market, gentrification, organizing tenants, and the impact of capitalism. So you mentioned you you came to Canada in the in the early nineties, but when did you arrive in Kingston? Two thousand, two thousand, August, late August, early September, two thousand three. Yeah, last station. Yeah. So Queens, I mean, right? I didn't arrive to Kingston. I arrived at Queens. Right. I think that's that's how it goes for a lot of people. It seems. Um, so you've been here for I guess twenty one years now. Then, how would you describe what? Kingston look like when when you got here and have you noticed any big changes in Kingston or are things still kind of the same as they were in the 2000s? At the beginning, I mean, it, you always have to take into consideration your own perspective, right? right. So, as I said, I didn't come to Kingston, I came to Queens. Mm -hmm. That means that I had no idea what's going on in Kingston. I, I, I was a part of a bubble that Queens is, and I was also 20 years younger, right. <laughs> so, you know, I was a student, that was my occupation, mm -hmm. student at, at an institution that considers itself elite. I, I had a human resources person from Queens in my taxi cab when I drove a taxi mm -hmm. later, way later, when I was a part of the Kingston community, tell me that what's curious is how Generally speaking, universities in Canada, in, uh, students in, in the good universities in Canada, are three quarters of them are on student loans, mm -hmm. and one quarter don't require student loans. Right. Queens is the opposite. Really? So, like in Queens, you know, one quarter is on student loans and three quarters are not. Right. So, anyway, the point is that needs to be considered. So, what did I? I mean, when I started the PhD, my student, whatever the deal, right, like the money that I was supposed to live on was, mm -hmm. I think the basic rate was 17000 or something like that per year. Wow. That included teaching and, like, you know, it included, like, my wage and didn't include tuition. Yeah. Unimportant. The, the point is that I was paying rent $335 for wow. a bachelor apartment. It was a shit bachelor apartment. Sure. It was the bottom, but it was legal. <laughs> bachelor apartment. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty much a third of what I pay right now. Yeah. For, for, for a bachelor? Yep. 
Yeah, I also had 425 for one bedroom at some point. Mm. Anyway, let's say that that's actually the deal. Like 335 for a bachelor apartment, 17 for the, the income, mm -hmm. 6,000 bucks tuition. Yeah. Get bursaries, a little more work here and there, whatever. I ended up making a little over 20,000, I think, in those early 2000s. It's the same now. <laughs> the income is the same. Yeah. The tuition has gone up. Yeah. And the rent has tripled. Yeah. So that's those are the numbers. It has grown. So, you know what else? I mean, once I started, because I'm not one of these rich kids, right? So I did land into the bubble. I didn't even know what I was doing because I, I didn't know in a sense. I didn't know what Queens was. I didn't right. come to Queens because it was a good school or because. I had whatever reputation it had. I didn't know its reputation. Yeah. I came here to study with a particular person who yeah. happened to have a, be a prof here. His name is Bob Shenton in the history department. Yeah. He was a historian, Afri African history, historian of West Africa and development theory. Yeah. And I was into that. That's what I wanted to study. So uh, that's why I came here. Yeah. Once I came, I realized what's going on very quickly. And, you know, being from a working class background, immigrant background, I uh, tended towards my own people, <laughs> I right. that, you know, I couldn't, couldn't even get along with. You know what I mean? The, the point is that I, I pretty, within a few years, I found the neighborhood I live in now, mm -hmm. which is they call it Williamsville, right. along with the Skeleton Park neighborhood, like Montreal Street, the Street. The kind Street, of sometimes yeah. gets referred to as that, like NOP, North of Princess? Yeah, yeah. Area. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was, you know, North of Princess means poor and dangerous. Right. It was poor and dangerous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people, rent was cheap, people owned their houses, a lot of working class people owned their houses, but they were poor, right? Mm -hmm. Like 20 years ago, you know, if you wanted to go further, NOP, you could get even cheaper rent than I was right. getting. I live right. in Colburn Street, which is like technically an OP, yeah. but it's still, you know, there's still pockets, but that has all changed, right? Like the professors were all south of Princess. Right. Students were all south of Princess. It was north of Princess was literally the city, and, and Queens didn't cross Princess. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you know, like Plaza is like this. First thing that happens with like princess, you right. know, that's where it gets what students would call sketchy. Right. In the last twenty years, that has changed. Like the, that kind of line mm -hmm. kept going north, kept moving north, mm -hmm. and now what you would describe as poor neighborhood with low real estate and rent prices is not mm -hmm. in existence. <laughs> so the, the line has moved. North and north and north, and the, like the police station used to be downtown. It used to be a right NOP. Mm -hmm. As soon as you cross Princess, there's a police station. Yeah. The police station, the positioning of the police station reveals uh, in every town, not in every town, but in most towns, mm -hmm. it will reveal the, the, the separation between the poor and the rich because what the police really do, for the most part, is protect the rich from the poor. The police station was 
north, immediately north of Princess, mm. to guard the north, the south from the north, which was always the really poor neighborhood, and the, it's where the projects are. Most of the, mm. the social housing in this town is concentrated in the north end of town. So now the police station separates, you know, the north end from the south. But the, the gentrification has, you know, the the, the rent prices by gentrification simply in economic terms i mean the the skyrocketing of rent and, and real estate prices has outpaced the police gentrification is not a, a conscious process so it's like capitalism it's, it's a social phenomenon that happens right so gentrifiers who are the students and the professors that are moving into the town uh, these are the gentrifiers, right? Mm -hmm. The students who are the children of the bourgeoisie, the children of the capitalists who own, you know, buildings and factories and mines and whatnot. They're not sitting there consciously plotting to to make people homeless or to, you know, increase the police mm -hmm. surveillance and presence and invent rules to, to keep poor people from being around mm -hmm. their favorite restaurants and shops but it happens because mm -hmm. it's not only a Kingston phenomenon right it happens everywhere else so as I mm -hmm. said most of the other universities have this don't have the student body that's so loaded mm -hmm. it's changing I mean they that's why I said this is like six seven year old news because I suspect that at this point there's been a transformation of the student body to, to be more leaning towards the trust fund kids and less towards loans mm -hmm. because i mean why because the whole world is changing so mm -hmm. so we're living in a period of since the fall of the soviet union since the the, the well, i would refer to as the flood mm -hmm. in the 90s there's been a steady you know a reintroduction of pre-keynesian what they call neoliberal mm -hmm. measures which are essentially, you know, driving this process of gentrification. You know, I don't even know if gentrification is a useful term, you know, because it kind of tends towards this individuation of, of the issue. So yeah. it's like, you know, rich white student like you, <laughs> whatever, like a white kid student yeah. is the bad guy. And, you know, the, the, I don't know, native poor person is the victim is the good guy or whatever yeah. it's not about good and bad guys it's, it's about capitalism so gentrification is basically a, a word that describes what some would refer to as uh, real estate capitalism mm -hmm. so it's like gentrification is capitalism it's in its urban form in it's right. like real estate form so what happens when capitalism has no more brakes on it doesn't have to listen to people advocating welfare measures and social uh, spending and so on. And then there's also the matter of, of you know, all this accumulated money and a crisis of accumulation, which, you know, in this instance in the last few decades, is it's reflecting itself or it's materializing itself in this process of the inflation of rent and real estate prices. In, in capitalism has reflected itself in the last few decades in the in this kind of housing uh, bubble housing situation you know? mm -hmm. and a lot of the money that the capitalists have to invest 
they accumulated money that they had that they didn't want to do with, that they have to invest to make more money, has basically been channeled into real estate because a lot of the old, you know, ways of making money like, uh, you know, carbon, like oil and steel and all these industries that destroyed the world mm -hmm. have kind of been pushed out of business and uh, a lot of the other ways that they used to make money can't be like, you know, a lot of, a lot has been covered. They took the whole world. Mm -hmm. So, so even though China is not capitalist, it's run by the party, the Communist Party, <clears throat> and even though it's still, you know, heavily saturated with capital, so like capitalist economics is functioning basically the whole world, mm -hmm. and uh, they got nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. So now they're building high, right. <laughs> they're building literally building buildings into the sky. And, and, and you know, turning something that's already commodified into something more commodified. Right. So you have these massive investment trusts, right? Banks, like finance capital is buying a property, building things. Real estate, like housing, is turning into something akin to stocks. Right. So it's not housing. It used to be housing. I mean, when Engels was writing about housing, he didn't even foresee this as a possibility. It was like housing is where it was like for living, right? And, yeah. and, and like it's fully commodified to the point where it's it's like it's you know what, what Marxists refer to as as use value is is completely irrelevant. Right. You know, <laughs> like the cup of coffee still has to have a shape in which you can put coffee mm. for it to function. Housing at this point is just sitting there growing money. about this point in the conversation that Doug arrived to join us, so I just want to use this opportunity to pause for a moment and talk a little more about some of the things Ivan brought up. After we had talked about the dramatic increase in rent Kingston has seen over the years, I came across an article published in January of this year titled, CMHC Survey, National Vacancy Rate Increased in 2020, which talks about the findings of the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation's Rental Market Survey for 2020. And this also has to do with what Ivan was referring to at the end there when he talked about housing just sitting there collecting money. In this article, Bob Dugan, the chief economist for CMHC, talks about the rise in both the average price of rent as well as the national vacancy rate, specifically an increase from 2 to 3.2% in the overall vacancy rate, with that getting as high as 7.5% in places like Regina and St. John's, with Kingston coming in right at the national average increasing to 3.2%. There was a decrease in some places, though not many. Notably, our neighbors over in Belleville saw the vacancy rate drop there by 3%. When it comes to rent, the national average increased across the board, though the article chooses to highlight the prices of two-bedroom units, which saw an increase of 3.6% on average. In Vancouver, that comes to around $1,800 a month. In Toronto, that's a little over $1,600 a month. And here in Kingston, the average rent for a two-bedroom apartment is $1,327 a month. 
So what Dugan points to as the reasons for these increases is three things, and while these are all related to the pandemic, some of them have really been accelerated by the pandemic, not necessarily created by it. But Dugan says, quote, Lower international migration, fewer student renters, and weaker employment conditions led to weaker inflows of new renters. Basically, that without demand from immigration and student populations, that second point applying to places like Kingston especially, the lack of affordable housing led to a noticeable increase in the national vacancy rates, which of course contributes to the rise of rent prices as landlords attempt to compensate for this lower demand. And again, while this trend was absolutely accelerated by the pandemic, other data on CMHC's website shows a history of steady increases in rent since their data begins in 1990. So in the case of Kingston, for a bachelor apartment, in 1990, you would have been paying $315 a month. Today, that number is $882 a month. And so to come back to that vacancy rate, which again is 3.2% in Kingston, if you look at the estimated number of rental units in Kingston, which according to the City of Kingston's rental housing market analysis for 2020, was 27,260 units in 2018. That means that there are nearly 820 vacant units of housing in Kingston. And to give a little bit of a preview for next month's episode, where among other things, we'll be talking with Pav Navarna, the president and CEO of United Way for KFLNA, about their 2021 point-in-time count for Kingston. And what this point-in-time count is, is an attempt to identify the number of people experiencing homelessness in a given night. And the number United Way comes up with for Kingston is 207 individuals. This means that for every one person living on the streets right now in Kingston, there are almost four vacant apartments they could be housed in. They just can't afford it. And on that note, let's get back into the interview now, where Ivan and I are going to be joined by Doug Yearwood to talk a little about his recent articles. Yeah, well, it's it was definitely like a, a collaborative effort. Um, that that article you know, took different. You know, we were in different uh, policy and research meetings with our tenant union and sort of figuring out exactly what the the city has planned there. Um, but basically, this I, it's easier to pick the story up in in twenty fifteen when this you know policy and planning documents released. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're they're noting. The years leading up to 2015, there's studies that are showing, you know, that, that the city's commissioned, that the buildings in the Heights that are rent geared to income, which isn't all of them, but there's a lot concentrated there, um, are deteriorating. It's too difficult to keep up with maintenance, essentially coming to the conclusion that, you know, there's issues of, of poverty there that need to be addressed. and the housing is in poor condition anyway, so why don't we start to move towards, you know, renewing or revitalizing this community? Um, and their solution is, is pretty interesting. It's pointed out in this 2015 document, the very first objective of the Rideau Heights Regeneration Strategy is to introduce market housing. Mm. Um, it's not all of what's gone into it. There's like things there that are um, help soften the blow, so to speak, that helps sort of like make this seem more legitimate, maybe in the eyes of, you know, your average liberal person. Um, 
but the first objective that's that's listed on this document is to introduce uh, private market schemes, whether that's uh, private rentals. Uh, we've heard rumblings about tiny homes maybe being introduced there, uh, but home ownership as well. Hmm. Um, and there's there's other things, you know, like it, it, I think it's like the fifth or sixth point that's listed on this 2015 document. They say that we want to make the neighborhood more easy for police to surveil. Uh, because, you know, we know that there's problems of poverty, of course, we know that the police need to have an easier job of, you know, punishing the poor for whatever issues they, they deem important. And that didn't make it into the article, but it, it's an important point there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the city comes up with this strategy, they want to eliminate the, the ratio of rent geared to income housing. So currently there's 501 or so rent geared to income units in the, the Heights. Um, they want to initially reduce that number to introduce market rents, but then they want to, or, and introduce, yeah, market rents, but then slowly over time, they say that they're gonna get that number back to 501, only um, there's gonna be a whole bunch of market rents in here. And, and there's interesting studies, you know, this, this strategy, this uh, gentrification strategy, um, because it, and it is gentrification. They want to introduce wealthier people into a lower income community to try and uplift people. You know, they want to in, do what's called social mixing. It's, it's not an attempt to actually grapple with complex issues of poverty. It's an attempt to let the market do what it does and, and allow, you know, the rich to benefit disproportionately to the poor. Um, and if you look at places in Toronto, and there's a few examples that are brought up in the article, you can sort of see what the results have been where this has been tried. So a few different communities are, are studied there. I think St. Lawrence, Don Mount Court, and, and one other it escapes me. But the results basically in all three cases have been that there's been an actual loss in community uh, because you know people are dispersed and um, you know, this has a, a real impact, you know, like in other places, I'm thinking like in Herringate, which is a community I'm studying for my PhD, which is up in Ottawa. Hmm. Um, you know, there's real kinship networks. Like if you want someone to look after your kid, uh, right. that person's right next door, but suddenly, you know, when it, the fabric of a community is sort of disintegrated, hmm. who knows, you know, it, it, maybe those things aren't as easy. So there's like this break apart of the, the working class community fabric. It's kind of also a gerrymandering strategy mm -hmm. as well. Like if you think about it in terms of electoral or just regular politics in general, like not considering the electoral aspect, you have a, a decline of tenant power and the ability for tenants to organize collectively and express their will collectively because suddenly the opinions that you're receiving aren't just the concentration of tenants, mm -hmm. but also the, the new homeowners that are in the community. And we've seen in a million cases that their interests can be aligned and should be aligned. Homeowners have been and are pitted against tenants, especially low-income tenants, mm -hmm. and who politicians cater to is the wealthy people who vote and not the poor who don't. Yeah. So you see a net decline in political power in these communities as well. Um, so the article tries to, to call attention to that, noting that there's concrete empirical examples of this that have taken place in places like Toronto and are currently undergoing in places like Ottawa, and sort of notes that this strategy ultimately will benefit the the landlord and developing class. Uh, it will benefit you know the wealthier homeowners. 
it won't benefit the poor it doesn't deal with poverty and and that's really the the rub of it so you know i think that the demands like what should be taking place there is the same that should be taking place elsewhere like huge amounts of money need to be poured into fixing up these units there needs to be a lot more maintenance done landlords no matter if they're kingston frontenac housing corporation or homestead need to be accountable and provide adequate decent housing that isn't filled with pests bugs whatever uh, mold and that's the opposite direction that they're they're moving in like the, the detail important detail about you know 25 year plan do not increase the amount of social housing and this replacement of units is like they will be replacing a three-bedroom townhomes with bachelor apartments right. it's not the same like I, I use an example like so you asked me about this neighborhood in particular right mm -hmm. like what, what's been happening is there would be a block of houses or like yeah let's say houses so you have like 10 old houses that housed let's say about 50 people and these 50 people were all paying let's say 500 bucks per room okay now these 10 houses or 50 rooms are torn down and in their stead there's a building built with 500 rooms you lost 50, well, in effect, what happens? And, and then this building is charging 1,000 bucks per room. So you have, you know, so much more housing, mm. but you've eliminated cheap housing, affordable housing, and you've built unaffordable housing. Mm. But it, it's also this question of, like, basically like an oligarchy that controls. I mean, if they build housing and charge rent, what are we going to do about it? We have to pay it if we don't want to be homeless. Like we're compelled to, right? So the way that the, the state operates, the way that things are right now, we have no leverage over capital. We basically are forced to concede, you know? I mean, if someone's saying we've destroyed 50 units where everyone could basically afford it, and in its stead, we're placing, you know, a place that has 500 rooms and everyone's paying 800 or a thousand bucks. The question that you have to sort of ask to workers is, what are you going to do about it? Right? Because, you know, the landlords have the power of the state. They have, you know, uh, the legal system all, you know, in their back pocket. Things are geared towards those who own. And for those who don't, you sort of, have no choice but to just go along with it or else be homeless or, or you, well you do have a choice right <laughs> if you have a strong housing uh, movement if you have a militant uh, anti-poverty movement if you have a strong communist party if you have you know if you that that's how you actually get power so if you raise that spectrum of expropriation, if you talk enough about it, if you explain enough, things like what's happening in Berlin happen. People are voting in referendums. Of course, people are going to vote to expropriate the, the billionaire, the, the obscenely rich. So you get the word out, you organize, you talk, you write. You write for people's voice, you write for passage, you write, and, and, and you talk and you get this out. 
but that's the thing the solutions are there and and the solutions have happened in the past i mean all the projects that exist in every city that are you know basically getting run into the ground and have been run into the ground and and replaced with with these monstrous these for-profit you know uh housing all over the place they were all built when you know soviet union and the the the, the worldwide communist movement was strong people all over the world not just soviet union africa asia south america everywhere people were you know on a real a real high decommodifying housing uh, and and it gets to a point like i think the crowning achievement of the ndp looking back a lot of people will say you know it's it's healthcare and and all this stuff and of course that that ranks up there but you know communists were also very involved in in those struggles and, and so you know same thing applies with soviet union and people taking power elsewhere is giving you know providing health care for the people that factors into what's going on uh, at that time but you look at the ndp in terms of housing especially um they form with the the clc the canadian labor congress in the 60s to create the Cooperative Housing Federation that gets co-ops off the ground. I think you're starting to see signs of life again here in the West, but... I mean, seriously, like five years ago, there was not a beep. Yeah. Nobody talked about housing in Kingston. There was no, nothing, right. nothing and, in the And I would suspect no, that five years, if things keep going down this track, five years from now, the NDP housing policies will be a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> I want to uh, pivot a little bit now that we have you both here. And so this is, I had this written in my, my questions before I saw your shirt, but there's a, a phrase I think a lot of people hear is that housing is a human right. But I think that maybe a lot of people who hear that don't know exactly what that means. And when you say something is a human right, and when you use the word housing, which can be kind of broad, it's not so clear exactly what people have a right to. So I was wondering if maybe uh, you, Doug, and I can feel free to jump in on this, like when people say that Canada has recognized housing as a human right. What does that mean or what is it supposed to mean? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, right? There's a, there's a few moving parts. There's what the state says and what the state does. Right. There's what different institutions have said versus the ideal. Mm. Um, so there's a few moving parts here that I think are, you know, interesting to consider like the UN and states that are signatories to the convention on, I think that it came up in 1966, the name of it eludes me right now. Um, but there's a convention. The date that, is important. Yeah. Everything happens. <laughs> yeah, 66. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a convention that's held. Uh, and basically, Canada is one of the, the signatories that says, yeah, of course, you know, everyone has a right to adequate, sustainable, decent housing. Um, that's basically the, the gist of it. And for a long time, I think, you know, the pervasiveness of homelessness wasn't as high. There was robust social housing programs. Uh, those that were homeless, I think there was, you know, enough of a basis in Canadian society for people to buy in to think that it's the individual's fault. You know, there's mm -hmm. a, um, so, you know, it's not a formal right that's like upheld, but there's enough people being housed that there's a legitimate, a certain legitimacy there. There's a, a bill that's passed where they sort of formalize this uh, and, you know, language and discourse around how everyone deserves a home. 
Um, and Trudeau comes out in 2018 and 2019 and has a quote that affirms just that. He says, you know, every Canadian deserves a place to sleep. So, you know, no matter where you look, if it's international conventions, uh, there's even like the Ontario uh, Human Rights Commission, they say that housing is a human right. So no matter where you look, basically, the state is saying that housing is a human right. And what that means in sort of its narrow, formal, legal definition is that people like have right to, as I said earlier, adequate, sustainable, decent housing. And it's, it's sort of ambiguous, but, you know, I think if you were to ask the average person what they think is meant by that, it's that, you know, you should have a space to live and that there should be four walls, heat, uh, appliances to cook, um, the basics, right? You know, you need something that is uh, certainly affordable. Um, that's a, a key component of adequacy uh, that you shouldn't be paying a huge amount of your income um, or be forced to sort of balance between utilities one month and payment of rent the other. But to date, we really haven't seen policy shift in a way that recognizes the rhetoric of our politicians and of our state. Uh, instead, what we see is more private schemes that ultimately benefit developers and landlords. We see policies being instituted at no matter the level, municipal, provincial, or federal, that actually ran completely counter to this. And, and they'll start to finesse uh, definitions like affordable to mean not what a worker would consider to be, you know, no more than one fifth of their income or whatever on, on you know, CMHC says 30%, we say one fifth. Mm -hmm. Ideally, it's a lot lower. In places like the Soviet Union, it's like one or 2% in East Germany, like 5%. Um, but, you know, um, they, they start tweaking these definitions of affordable to mean, oh, we're paying 80% market rate. And what this does is it sort of shifts expectations. So you have a right to affordable housing. But what does affordable mean? Right. Affordable means that you're paying market rent or just below. Mm -hmm. So there's these games, essentially, that, that are being played that actually prevent people from being able to access housing that's truly affordable, that's you know universal. And, you know, it's, it's not democratic, it's not publicly controlled, it's domineered by private interests. And because of this, you know, the fact that private interests control the housing sector, it fundamentally precludes us from being able to recognize housing as a right because the public doesn't have power over the private interests. Right. Like I told you earlier about how these third world countries managed to kind of uh, impose certain rules on the United Nations, right? This is a part of it. So, you know, much like the peaceful coexistence principle in, in, that is ingrained in, in United Nations Charter mm -hmm. and United Nations conventions and so on, which makes American interventions in most of the, you know, most of their interventions, military interventions in other people's countries, illegal, contrary to, to your conventions. Same thing is here with the housing. So there was a moment in which there was enough socialist power in the United Nations to 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 actually get this on the books. So the you know it's it's really about relational class forces. Like at the time housing was it wasn't resolved, but it was essentially resolved. Like most of the world 
in the 60s and in the 70s was house mm -hmm. and and it was actually a functioning you know it, it worked and they are now carrying out policies which are they're in violation of United Nations conventions so that's the thing it's, it's like they're do our policy our city with its you know protocol on on uh, encampments our province our, our state are in violation of conventions that they're signatory to. They are supposed to provide housing for all. They have come close in the 60s and the 70s, 80s, and now they're violating those rules. So, you know, why might be the better question. And it's, it's you know, because homelessness everywhere, people can't afford rent. What are politicians doing? affordable housing. They're going to build more affordable housing. Explain what the, Doug explained what affordable housing means. Literally in Belleville over there. <laughs> they have given money to developers uh, to build a building which they're going to charge every unit market price and they're do, doing this with the federal money designated for affordable housing. Like the, the, our government, our municipal government, our federal or provincial government, all these governments, you know, they are acting consciously contrary to the international law. And, and some people might, you know, roll their eyes and say, well, how could that be true? They're, I know this person. I know that they mean well. They try hard. Uh, you know. And they may have helped them out in, in an instance or two. But, you know, what are the alternatives if all these well-meaning people just couldn't discover what to be done and, and that they had to do, you know, of course we're going to turn to the market. I mean, is it all just a coincidence? Like, who do, and then, you know, who do we hold accountable for deaths, for homelessness, for ripping apart families? Someone's accountable for that. And it's not the people that are suffering who are the victim of these policy decisions. At some point, there, there's got to be confrontation with the state and a real reckoning for what's taken place here, for the lives that have been destroyed and immiserated and um, people forced to live in poverty and the, the tensions and, and stresses and intergenerational trauma that that causes. But I think it's important to take stock of like the the big picture too, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we continue down this path, if affordable continues to mean unaffordable, mm -hmm. if, you know, and if, if more and more people are coming to Canada and there's like a population increase and the supply of housing that, and, and jobs continue to stagnate and that there be part-time jobs, mm -hmm. precarious work, then the outlook doesn't look great. Um, you know, the city may be able to help most. Most might be able to find other social housing units to live in. Um, others might have families that they can rely on. But for those who don't, they're going to be homeless. Um, it doesn't look good if you're a poor person here. There's not a lot to sort of look forward to except for the continued growth of the service industry uh, to cater to the richer, more affluent 
Queens students. Mm. And the students are a lot of the people getting those jobs as well when it comes to seasonal employment. And they're a lot of the people getting the market housing. Yeah. Um, so you end up with a situation where people who've always grown up north of Princess had this natural agnosticism or even antagonism towards the Queens community justified in, in those thoughts because the housing and the policies being favored benefit wealthy, wealthier, mostly white people, while those who don't actually have housing that's built in their interests continue to suffer. They have this decrepit housing that they're sort of forced to exist in, and when that becomes removed, when they no longer are able to sort of uh, exist in the communities that they grew up in and found safety in, um, they're going to be relocated elsewhere, and they might be able to make it for a short period of time in the private market. Mm -hmm. But what happens when there's another crisis? What happens when another pandemic comes along? Or what happens when the pandemic doesn't offer the recovery that, you know, the bourgeois economists and our bourgeois politicians say will happen? Mm -hmm. When they're sort of stuck at a job that pays minimum wage or maybe is even, you know, off the books, you know, and they're paid below minimum wage or they're, you know, just stuck in this precarious condition and they miss a, a rent payment. You know, I have a, a skeptical outlook. The only way out of things is to organize. The only way to resolve this is to continue to organize and get people to realize that if you start from the basis that everyone deserves housing, this, this experiment or this project that they're undertaking in the Heights is so symbolic of what's happening elsewhere in society where there's a thin veneer of progressivism that what we're trying to do is actually tackle the quote-unquote real issues. But when you start to look at the actual policies and the strategy being implemented, it's really disappointing. You see it's more of the same, that the interests that are you know, most prevalent are the police being able to surveil the poor, or the rich developers, or the people who are wealthy enough to afford home ownership. Um, and lost in the mix are the people who are affected by the policy decision, right. the poor. Um, I mean, this is a serious thing, right? Like death results from homelessness. You're closer to death when you're home. You're a lot closer to death when you're homeless than when you have a home. People lose feet. They lose fingers. They lose, you know, from the cold. They lose their minds. They lose their family. They lose everything. Children. Like it, almost... Every woman you see on the street has children stolen away from her, and is more than likely uh, an indigenous. Genocide, ongoing genocide, ongoing genocide. It's, it, it, imagine that. We used to organize that around that a lot, and it's just, it's an ongoing genocide, and that's what it is. And, and you know, if they didn't know before, now they do. <laughs> because we told them we and we're it. telling them many times and, and showing how they know now they know So that just about wraps up this first episode of Crisis Watch Kingston. But I again want to mention to anybody who's listening that if you want to learn more about some of what Doug and Ivan brought up today, 
absolutely check out their recent writings, especially as it's one we talked about a lot. Cities Rideau Heights plan is bad for tenants, and I also recommend to read the city's plan at the center of this article for yourself, as well as any and all other reports I've mentioned throughout this show. All of these sources will be available in the description of the podcast version of this episode. For next month's episode, we'll be continuing our conversations about the housing crisis by talking specifically about homelessness. As I mentioned earlier, we'll be joined by President and CEO of United Way KFLA, Bhavana Varma, to talk about what the homeless community here in Kingston looks like. But also, I hope to bring you a series of short interviews from some of the folks living at and around the Integrated Care Hub on Montreal Street to hear directly from the source what life is really like on the streets of Kingston. But before I sign off here, I just want to reiterate my hope that this show can become a platform for all the peoples of Kingston to be able to make their voices heard and have a place to share their stories. So, dear listeners, I want to open the floor up to you as well. If you or someone you know has been directly affected by not just the housing crisis, but any of the other crises I mentioned at the start of the show, the opioid epidemic, food insecurity, income insecurity, struggles with the healthcare system, especially relating to mental health, I would love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to me at svalancourt at cfrc.ca. That's S-V-A-I-L-L-A-N-C-O-U-R-T at cfrc.ca. There's truly nothing I enjoy more than having the opportunity to sit down and talk with somebody about their experiences. All of us, each and every person here in Kingston, has a unique story to add to this discussion, and we would love to hear yours. And with that, thank you all so much for listening, and I hope to see you all next time on Crisis Watch Kingston. for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.